Hello, this is Michael Schatz, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice. It is my pleasure to present to you the highlights of our September 2023 issue. The theme of this issue is biologics, and we thank editorial board members Bill Bussey and Teresa Gilbert for serving as coordinators for this issue. Asthma biologics are discussed in this issue from two unique perspectives whether biologic treatment responses in severe asthma are the same in adults and children, and how evidence from specific interventions with anti-interleukin-5 biologic therapy support the unified airway hypothesis. While the first biologics in our field were approved to treat asthma, they are now being used for an increasing variety of conditions treated by allergist immunologists. Articles in this issue also cover the use and role of biologics in the management of chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, eosinophilic esophagitis, and hyper-eosinophilic syndromes. Finally, an insightful theme editorial was contributed by theme coordinators Bill Bussey and Teresa Gilbert that does a terrific job of summarizing and contextualizing these theme review articles and discussing how the biologic revolution has improved patient care. In addition to the theme review articles, there are several other important review and feature articles in this issue. Overcoming barriers to hypoallergenic formula access for patients with food allergies, flaws and limitations of classification criteria for drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms, and artificial intelligent chatbots in allergy and immunology practice. Now I would like to present the highlights of the original articles in this issue, which are on the subjects of biologics, asthma, dermatitis, drug allergy, eosinophilic disorders, food allergy, immunodeficiency, immunotherapy, insect sting allergy, and urticaria. The first article is Response to Biologics and Clinical Remission in the Adult German Asthma Net Severe Asthma Registry Cohort by Milger et al. What is already known about this topic? Clinical remission on treatment, defined as more than one year of good symptom control in the absence of exacerbations in oral corticosteroid therapy, has recently been proposed as a possible treatment goal, even in severe asthma. What does this article add to our knowledge? It provides first real-life data from a severe asthma cohort showing a remission rate of one-third after starting of a biologic. Patients treated without a biologic had lower remission rates despite less severe disease at baseline. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Clinical remission can be achieved in a proportion of patients with severe asthma and the concept might help improve outcomes in the future. Biologics are an important factor for achieving remission. The next article is Long-Term Real-World Outcomes of Mepolizumab and Benralizumab Among Biologic Naive Patients with Severe Eosinophilic Asthma, Experience of Three Years Therapy, by Files et al. What is already known about this topic? Benralizumab and mepolizumab are efficacious in reducing oral corticosteroid, OCS use, and exacerbation rates in patients with severe eosinophilic asthma 
in experimental and real-world cohorts. Few studies run past 12 months of follow-up. What does this article add to our knowledge? This article demonstrates the real-world efficacy of venralizumab and mepolizumab in reducing OCS use and exacerbation rates for up to 36 months. It demonstrates that a super-response at 12 months is likely to be preserved at 36 months. How does this study impact current management guidelines? This study complements existing data on shorter-term outcomes of monoclonal therapy in severe eosinophilic asthma and demonstrates the efficacy and safety of long-term use. The ongoing reduction in OCS requirement past 12 months without an associated loss of asthma control reinforces current evidence on early tapering of corticosteroids. The next article is Real-World Effectiveness of IL-5 and IL-5 Receptor Alpha Targeted Biologics in Severe Eosinophilic Asthma with Comorbid Bronchiectasis by Bendian et al. What is already known about this topic? Anti-IL-5 and anti-IL-5 receptor alpha biologics have been shown to reduce the exacerbation rate and oral corticosteroid, OCS, use in severe eosinophilic asthma. How coexisting bronchiectasis, a common comorbidity in severe asthma, affects the response to these biologics is unknown. What does this article add to our knowledge? This real-world study shows that anti-IL-5 and anti-IL-5 receptor alpha biologics effectively reduce the exacerbation frequency and daily maintenance and cumulative OCS dose in patients with severe eosinophilic asthma and comorbid bronchiectasis. How does this study impact current management guidelines? The findings suggest that anti-IL-5 and anti-IL-5 receptor alpha biologics should be considered as add-on therapy for patients with severe eosinophilic asthma, regardless of comorbid bronchiectasis. This therapy may help reduce OCS exposure, which is particularly relevant in this patient group. The next article is Impact of Initiating Biologics in Patients with Severe Asthma on Long-Term Oral Corticosteroids or Frequent Rescue Steroids, GLITTER, data from the International Severe Asthma Registry by Chen et al. What is already known about this topic? In real life, biologic use is associated with significant improvement in asthma outcomes, but its effectiveness has not been established in patients with high oral corticosteroid, OCS, exposure, or compared with continuing with high OCS alone. What does this article add to our knowledge? Continued high OCS exposure and switch to biologics were both associated with improvement in severe asthma outcomes. However, patients with high OCS exposure who initiated biologics experienced even greater improvements than those who continue with long-term or frequent rescue OCS. How does this study impact current management guidelines? These findings may influence guidelines to recommend biologics, even in patients showing improvement on long-term or regular rescue OCS, as a cost-effective strategy to improve outcomes 
while reducing OCS exposure. The next article is Long-Term Weight Changes After Starting Anti-IL-5 or Anti-IL-5 Receptor Alpha Biologics in Severe Asthma, The Role of Oral-Corticosteroids by Tenhavi et al. What is already known about this topic? Many patients with severe asthma are overweight or obese, possibly related to a dose-dependent side effect of oral corticosteroids, OCS. Anti-IL-5 and anti-IL-5 receptor alpha biologics significantly reduce OCS use, but their long-term effects on weight are unknown. What does this article add to our knowledge? In our large severe asthma cohort, anti-IL-5 or anti-IL-5 receptor alpha therapy was associated with minor weight loss after two years. The higher the OCS exposure before and the greater the OCS reduction during biologic therapy, the more weight the patients lose. How does this study affect current management guidelines? Although healthy weight is important to both the patient and the healthcare provider, most patients do not achieve this despite biologic treatment, suggesting that additional interventions are needed if weight change is desired. The next article is Patterns of Asthma Medication Use in New Zealand After Publication of National Asthma Guidelines by Hatter et al. What is already known about this topic? The 2020 update of the New Zealand Adolescent and Adult Asthma Guidelines took the novel approach of recommending a standalone stepwise treatment algorithm specifically incorporating budesonide formoterol reliever therapy as the preferred management approach. What does this article add to our knowledge? There was a progressive and substantial increase in budesonide formoterol dispensing accompanied by a reduction in dispensing of short-acting beta-2 agonists and other inhaled corticosteroid long-acting beta-2 agonist medications during the 18-month period after the publication and dissemination of the New Zealand Asthma Guidelines. How does this study impact current management guidelines? This study provides data that widespread Transition to budesonide formoterol maintenance and or reliever therapy regimens in clinical practice can be achieved if recommended and promoted as the preferred therapeutic approach in national asthma guidelines. The next article is beginning to address an implementation gap in asthma. Clinicians' views of prescribing reliever budesonide formoterol inhalers and SMART in the United States by Krings et al. What is already known about this topic? Despite the evidence base, many clinicians do not prescribe reliever inhaled corticosteroid formoterol inhalers and single maintenance and reliever therapy, SMART, in clinical practice. The reasons for this implementation gap have not been explored. What does this article add to our knowledge? This study performed in-depth interviews of real-world clinicians to better understand why clinicians do or do not prescribe reliever inhaled corticosteroid formoterol inhalers and SMART in practice. 
An implementation science framework was used to guide inquiry. Interviewed clinicians identified barriers to new inhaler paradigms, including medical legal concerns, high drug cost, and time constraints needed to explain inhaler changes. Nonetheless, clinicians found the latest inhaler recommendations intuitive and simpler for patients. How does this study impact current management guidelines? This information may help guide efforts to improve the implementation of the latest inhaler recommendations and guidelines. The next article is a discrete choice experiment to assess patient preferences for asthma rescue therapy and disease management by Israel et al. What is already known about this topic? Current asthma management is suboptimal. Despite treatment, many patients have uncontrolled asthma and receive bursts of oral corticosteroid treatment. Patients often are non-adherent to maintenance therapy, frequently rely on short-acting beta-agonist rescue medications, and do not always follow asthma home management plans. What does this article add to our knowledge? Patients most valued reducing asthma attacks requiring urgent clinician visits, decreasing the number of exacerbations requiring oral corticosteroids, and attenuating the yearly risk for thrush. Patients also preferred a single inhaler for rescue and maintenance. How does this study impact current management guidelines? As supported by the most recent Global Initiative for Asthma and National Asthma Education and Prevention Program reports, understanding patients' preferences for treatment attributes may help facilitate shared decision-making conversations between clinician and patients to gain better alignment on management options. The next article is Prospective Real-World Analysis of Asthma Patients with Preserved and reduced physical activity by Iwamoto et al. What is already known about this topic? Asthma is a highly heterogeneous airway disease with various clinical phenotypes. The clinical characteristics of patients with asthma with preserved and reduced physical activity are poorly understood. How does this article add to our knowledge? Reduced physical activity was observed in late-onset eosinophilic asthma, high body mass index non-eosinophilic asthma, symptom-predominant asthma, and asthma-chronic obstructive pulmonary disease overlap at baseline and one year later. Well-controlled asthma with good physical activity included a high biologics user proportion. How does this study impact current management guidelines? This study showed the clinical features of patients with asthma with preserved and reduced physical activity. The present results indicated that a personalized treatment approach is required to improve physical activity in patients with asthma. The next article is Cluster Analyses from the Real-World Novelty Study, Six Clusters Across the Asthma COPD Spectrum by Hughes et al. What is already known about this topic? Asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, are heterogeneous, and in many patients have features of both conditions, but the treatment recommendations are markedly different. For precision medicine, we need to identify distinct disease phenotypes 
or underlying molecular mechanisms. What does this article add to our knowledge? Cluster analysis among patients with asthma and or COPD in the large real-world novel observational longitudinal study yielded six overlapping clusters, each including asthma, asthma COPD, and COPD, with several discriminatory features that differed from conventional diagnostic characteristics. How does this study impact current management guidelines? The findings demonstrate the heterogeneity and overlap between features of asthma, asthma COPD, and COPD in real-world patients, contrasting with the siloed populations with asthma or COPD on which current management guidelines are based. The next article is Comprehensive Characterization of Difficult-to-Treat Asthma Reveals Near Absence of T2-Low Status by Rupani et al. What is already known about this topic? Difficult to treat or severe asthma is stratified into T2 high and low endotypes, but the real-world prevalence and clinical characteristics remain poorly understood. How does this article add to our knowledge? This real-world study shows that multi-component and longitudinal characterization of T2 status reveals a near absence of T2 low status among biologic-naive, difficult-to-treat, or severe asthma patients. How does this study impact current management guidelines? This study emphasizes the need to undertake a comprehensive assessment of T2 status in difficult-to-treat and severe asthma to guide treatment options accurately. The next article is Assessing Asthma Control by Impulse Oscillometry and fractional expiratory nitric oxide in children with normal spirometry by Yoon et al. What is already known about this topic? Impulse oscillometry, IOS, and fractional inhaled nitric oxide measurements have a potential to provide additional information about airway pathology that spirometry fails to capture. What does this article add to our knowledge? IOS is able to identify patients with inadequately controlled asthma when spirometry was not sensitive enough to detect inadequately controlled asthma. The ability of IOS is further enhanced by combination with fractional inhaled nitric oxide. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Our results support incorporation of IOS into clinical practice in parallel with spirometry. The next article is Impact of Allergic Disease on the Risk of Mycobacterial Disease by Kim et al. What is already known about this topic? The reported relationship between allergic disease and mycobacterial disease has been inconsistent. Some studies showed an inverse or positive correlation, whereas others showed no association. What does this article add to our knowledge? Our study evaluated the relationship between the risk of allergic disease and mycobacterial disease. We have demonstrated that asthma and allergic rhinitis are associated with an increased risk of having mycobacterial diseases. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Clinicians should be aware of the potentially higher susceptibility of individuals with asthma or allergic rhinitis to mycobacterial diseases. 
The next article is Beyond the Skin, Reduced Lung Function Associated with Atopic Dermatitis in Infants by Gulek Kaksal et al. What is already known about this topic? Few studies have evaluated lung function using tidal breath analysis in the early stages of life in infants with atopic dermatitis, AD, with the potential to progress to asthma. What does this study add to our knowledge? This study revealed reduced lung function in infants with AD compared with healthy controls. In addition, Lung functions were low irrespective of the history of recurrent bronchial obstruction, food allergen sensitivity, and disease severity. How does this study impact current management guidelines? It may be advantageous to evaluate the lung function of infants with AD at an early stage of life to identify patients at risk of asthma and to understand atopic march progression. The next article is Facilitators and Barriers to Verifying Penicillin Allergies in a Veteran Nursing Home Population by Gillespie et al. What is already known about this topic? Unconfirmed penicillin allergies are common and may contribute to adverse outcomes, especially in nursing home patients. A high prevalence of frailty and cognitive impairment creates unique challenges to penicillin allergy verification strategies in this population. What does this article add to our knowledge? This is the first study to examine facilitators and barriers to penicillin allergy verification in nursing home residents by examining perception of key stakeholders, including frontline staff, hospital leadership, patients, and family members. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Local pharmacy involvement plus education of staff, patients, and family members will be necessary to successfully implement an allergy assessment pathway to delabel nursing home patients with penicillin allergies. The next article is Examining Disparities in Pediatric Eosinophilic Esophagitis by Meta et al. What is already known about this topic? Differences in disease prevalence and health outcomes based on race, socioeconomic status, and urbanization have been described in multiple atopic diseases. What does this article add to our knowledge? There are differences in presentation and care for children with eosinophilic esophagitis depending on race, urbanization, and socioeconomic status. How does this study impact current management guidelines? We speculate that differences in eosinophilic esophagitis presentation and care are due to structural factors and health inequities that affect historically marginalized communities. We can begin to address these disparities by developing policies that promote equity. The next article is Maternal Omega-3 Supplementation During Pregnancy but not childhood supplementation, reduces the risk of food allergy diseases in offspring. By Hoon et al. What is already known about this topic? Previous studies suggest that omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acid supplementation during pregnancy and lactation may protect against food allergies in children. However, inconsistent randomized controlled study trial results 
and unknown optimal dosage and timing remain. What does this article add to our knowledge? Maternal omega-3 supplementation during pregnancy and lactation was associated with reduced egg and peanut sensitization risks in children. In contrast, omega-3 supplementation during childhood did not protect significantly against food allergies. In addition, higher doses of maternal omega-3 supplementation were linked to lower rates of infant egg sensitization during early life. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Our findings suggest that healthcare professionals may recommend increased omega-3 consumption during pregnancy as a potential strategy to reduce the risk of food allergies in children, which confers more benefits than omega-3 supplementation in childhood. The next article is Screening for Low T-Cell Receptor Excision Circles, TREX, Fails to Detect Immunodeficiency, Centromeric Instability, and Facial Anomalies Syndrome, by Staudacker et al. What is already known about this topic? T-cell receptor excision circle, TREC, screening is a highly sensitive method to detect severe combined immunodeficiencies. It does not detect patients with relevant T-cell deficiency, but rather normal naive T-cells at birth. What does this article add to our knowledge? Immunodeficiency, centromeric instability, and facial anomalies syndrome type 2, ICF2, and ICF3 are conditions not detected by TREC screening at birth. Yet, patients with ICF may nevertheless benefit from curative treatment early in life. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Physicians should be vigilant for clinical signs of ICF in infants. Patients with ICF should be evaluated for early hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. The next article is Comparison of Standard, Cluster, and Rush Immunotherapy Buildup Protocols by Lee et al. What is already known about this topic? Accelerated allergy immunotherapy buildup protocols achieve maintenance dosing in a shorter time frame than standard buildup, but are perceived to have risk for an increased rate of adverse reactions. What does this article add to our knowledge? This article presents data that the RUSH and cluster protocols achieve maintenance dosing in a comparable time frame and with similar rates of systemic reactions despite the pretreatment regimen required with the RUSH protocol. How does this study impact current management guidelines? The results of this study support the use of the cluster protocol over the RUSH protocol with regard to allergy immunotherapy buildup. The next article is Basophil Activation Test in Double Sensitized Patients with Hymenoptera Venom Allergy, Additional Benefit of Component Resolved Diagnostics by Schmidl et al. What is already known about this topic? Basophil activation tests, BAT, with extracts helps in the diagnosis of Hymenoptera venom allergy in inconclusive cases by better identifying the clinically relevant venom than routine testing, specific IgE skin testing. 
What does this article add to our knowledge? BATs not only with extracts, but also with single molecular components of Hymenoptera venoms have an additional benefit in determining the relevant insect for venom immunotherapy with the relevant insect in more than a quarter of patients with double sensitization. How does this study impact current management guidelines? In the allergology workup of patients with insect venom allergy, the allergens should be expanded by single molecular components when performing the BAT in inconclusive cases. The last article is urticarial vasculitis differs from chronic spontaneous urticaria in time to diagnosis, clinical presentation, and need for anti-inflammatory treatment, an international prospective UCARE study by Bonico et al. What is already known about this topic? Chronic spontaneous urticaria, CSU, is the most common reason for recurrent wheels, but some patients develop them because they have urticarial vasculitis, UV, a more severe and difficult-to-treat condition. As of yet, the clinical criteria for differentiation between the two disorders are not well established. What does this article add to our knowledge? As compared with CSU, UV is associated with longer diagnostic delay, normal complementemic form, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation of the skin, wheels of 24-hour or longer duration, systemic symptoms, and higher need for immunosuppressive and anti-inflammatory therapies. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Routine assessment of the skin and systemic symptoms that we identified to be linked to UV will improve the diagnostic workup of patients with recurrent wheels. This would shorten the diagnostic delay and allow for earlier appropriate treatment of UV. Thank you for listening to the highlights of the September 2023 issue of the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice. This is Michael Schatz, and I hope you find this issue beneficial for you and your patients.